today we're going to be starting a, a new series from the book of Hebrews. Jesus and how he is greater and better and, and pointing us to him. And, you know, I was thinking about how many th- times in life we are let down by so many things, but um, we have this sure hope. You know, Hebrews talks about how he is an anchor for our soul. And so as we sing this next song, um, let's just uh, let this be a prayer to, to God that he would be our vision, uh, that we would recognize how much better and greater Jesus is. Just uh, really want to say, if you're here, as you're, if you're a guest this morning, and this is your first time at Creekside Church, in the seat in front of you, beneath the seat in front of you, there is a guest card. If you would be so kind as to take that out and fill it out, I think there are pencils located, or if you need to, you can find, we'll get you one. And then as the offering goes by a little later, that's all we want you to put in the offering plate. We're just really glad that you're joining with us this morning for worship. We're excited that you're here. I have a few things to call to your attention. You received one of these in your bulletin insert. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Love Your Neighbor by Loving Your Neighbor. Okay, it actually meant, you know, when Jesus said love your neighbor, we think maybe he meant actually that we should love our neighbors. And those are the people that live around us. And here, this is uh, Love Your Neighbor is maybe just love the people that you work with. That's a place to start. And some of the people we work with aren't so lovable, maybe, but then maybe they don't think we're so lovable either. So uh, God has called us to reach out and care for and minister and serve the people around us. And so we, we put this out as a challenge, as a reminder, as an encouragement. And my hope and desire is that from time to time we'll come back to these things. There's a, a person that I know who regularly takes food to their co-workers. They work at a place and they regularly are fixing a meal for the lunch meal. They have about a half a dozen or so people that take part in that and they just, uh, on a routine basis, they kind of rotate around and, and this person takes their turn to take the meal. That's just one idea with a lot of things you can do. And particularly, you could be praying for the people that you work with, that God would soften their hearts and that he would open opportunities for us to share the gospel with them. Some other things to call to your attention, uh, Doug is manning a table out in the entryway where there's a sign-up for small groups. You'll see information in the bulletin. I encourage you to stop by there after the service and see uh, if there's a small group that might meet when a time when you can meet and you can find out maybe what they're discussing and encourage you to do that. One of the best ways to get connected is to get connected. So if you want to just come on Sunday nights and, or Sunday mornings and show up, uh, that's all you're going to get. But if you get involved and you get around some other people, you get a chance to meet some of the good people at Creekside Church and get a better flavor for who they are and also be able to grow and mature in your walk with, with Christ. 
I want to invite you all, if you're kind of new to the Creekside family, next Sunday after the, this service, we're going to have a get-to-know-us luncheon. Uh, Mark Klein, one of our other elders, and I are going to be kind of leading a discussion at, around a meal, and you can ask questions, and we're kind of share with you what our philosophy of ministry is, uh, some of the doctrinal teachings of the church, just a good way for you to get acquainted with us and us with you. And the last thing that I want to call to your attention is that this week is the final push for collecting stuff for the little free food pantry. We have this little, it looks like a little box on a stilts out in the, uh, along the parking lot. And actually it's a food pantry for anyone in the area who is in dire need of some emergency supplies. They can just come in and get some stuff. There's some samples of things that you can pick up on the table out in the entryway. Just encourage you to take part in that and help us out. We're trying to raise 500 items or get 500 items in so we can supply that for the next month and a half or so. And our friends at the reserve next door, they actually are in charge of distributing the stuff. So we take it over there and then they take and supply and put what needs to be put into the little free food pantry. So that's all the announcements I have. I'm just going to ask you to pray with me if you would as we prepare to worship through the study of God's Word. Father, we ask that you would encourage us through the study of your Word as we spend some concerted time in the book of Hebrews, I pray that you would lift our eyes to the hills from where our help comes, and our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I ask that you would bring conviction to our hearts, that you would bring confidence to those of us who claim Christ, and that you would bring a realization of our need to trust you for those who don't. Give us wisdom and insight and encouragement, but most of all, Lord, we pray you draw us to yourself and that you would send us from this place to be your light and your witnesses for your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I recently had a conversation with an individual who believes, at least stated that they believe that all faith systems are equally valid in bringing us to God. I also recently read uh, a survey or portions of a survey from a college student that was asked questions about Christianity, about Jesus, about uh, faith, and things like that. And basically the answers that were given were like, well, Jesus is a man, and Christianity not, uh, not so much, and uh, things like this. And so I, I, I put those two up, those two experiences that I've had, those two pieces of information, and I say, isn't that really indicative of the culture in which, which we live? It's a culture that has a heightened awareness, a heightened interest in spirituality. And yet, with the increasing interest in spirituality is a proportional accompanied hostility towards the truth claims of Christianity. So while the world is becoming more spiritually aware, they're also becoming more hostile towards the exclusive truth claims of Christianity. 
hostility that comes, you know, towards those who come to faith in Christ from people who were maybe in a faith system. They came out of a faith system that they turned away from so that they would put their faith and trust and follow, the, follow Jesus. I know of, I don't know them personally, but I know of a person who spends their entire evening from about 7 o'clock in the night until about 3 or 4, 5, 6 in the morning running. Moving from place to place to place to place because family members and members of the faith system that they escaped from and came to Christ from are hunting them down to kill them. They sleep four hours a day. And then it's back to moving from place to place to place to place so that those hunting them down, because they name the name of Jesus, want to kill them. A world that's hostile, not just because you leave a faith system and you claim another faith system, but a world that's hostile because increasingly we are buying into this idea that truth is relative, that there is no such thing as absolute truth, especially the absolute truth of Christianity. And because there is no absolute truth, then my truth is equally valid with your truth, and so if you claim to have exclusive truth, then I don't like you. And it's a world system that puts the world at enmity with Christianity. I believe that's a device of our greatest enemy, Satan. Because Satan, I believe, wants to sort of obliterate this concept, the truth of absolute truth. Because if he can do that, then he can eviscerate Christianity of its substance by either eliminating or else soft-pedaling the idea that man is truly sinful and therefore truly deserving of God's judgment, and that the only solution to man's sin problem, which separates him from God, is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what better plan than to say, you know, that's just a bunch of gobbledygook. You don't really need to listen to that. It's just not really true. And therefore, we have churches, many churches, even in our own country, the United States, that are backpedaling, that are compromising their moral standards and the truth claims because, you know, the church has to keep up with the times, so they say. I just find that a fascinating statement. It really is kind of an infuriating statement, but it's like, okay, so now the church is going to dictate to God how things should go. Because, after all, we are superior to God. No, I mean, that's the underlying thought behind it. So what happens is the high cost of following Christ, which results in us sometimes having to run from our own family members, or probably more for us, being ostracized, alienated, because we're kind of the weird, wacko Christian people in the family, you know, the Jesus freaks that are, you know what a, a fanatic is, just somebody who loves Jesus more than I do. And so we're in danger of being alienated or not tolerated by the culture. And so we're tempted, if we're truly believers in Jesus, we're tempted because of the persecution 
because of the ostracism, the alienation, to kind of adopt a little more palatable Christianity, kind of an anemic faith, an anemic faith that kind of waters down our convictions. They don't want to stand too firmly on the truth because then we're just kind of be ostracized from our friends and our family. We don't want to say that salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone and that we believe in the supremacy of Christ and our submission to Him. We don't want to have to wave a white flag of surrender and say, okay, Lord, you have control of my life. That's just not really play real well with the crowd. That somehow you just turned off your brain. That's what the, the world says. And we have this anemic approach to faith that compromises moral standards if we need to. I was listening to someone tell me that there was a group of Christian leaders in a church in another country. And they were being taught about the lordship of Christ, about how Christ is Lord of all, and what it means to be servant leaders in the church. And they went back and forth, had this great animated discussion in their own native language. And as it was translated, they were told, the, the person who was talking to me said that the translation was, well, if we accept this teaching, we're going to have to stop beating our wives. Because culturally, in their culture, as Christians, it was acceptable. In the culture, but not to Christ, not in the Bible. And so we're tempted to compromise. And, and, and some people who are in the church, they don't really trust in Christ, they're not really believers, but they kind of are along for the ride. They know intellectually about Jesus, but they haven't really become convinced that they want to surrender to Jesus. Those people are just going to stick their finger in their mouth and get a little wetness and test the wind of the waves of the air and say, whatever the world wants me to believe, that's where I'm going because I don't want to be seen as intolerant. And those who are along for the ride and don't know Christ or don't claim to know Christ, they'll just do whatever they want to do. And so we find ourselves, I think, in this society, in this culture, very much aligned with the folks to whom the author of Hebrews wrote this book. Because in this book, there were a group of people, Christians, who were tempted because of the persecutions of Nero and because of the culture in which they lived to kind of soft-pedal their faith, and it was resulting in leading them down a path of spiritual immaturity. There was a group of people in the church who knew all about Jesus, but really remained unconvinced that he was the Savior of the world, that they had to personally trust in his death as a payment for their sins. And these people were willing to test the winds of teachings and just adopt what they needed to because they didn't want to be seen as outcasts in the culture. It was more important to be accepted by men. And then there were unbelievers that they really didn't care. They are going to live however they wanted to. The need then, the need now, is to find an anchor for our soul. It's a, to be tethered to the truth that gives those of us who name the name of Jesus confidence that we can pursue and press ahead, holding to the truth regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what people say. It gives us this confidence. And also at the same time provides a compelling 
argument for those who don't know Christ to turn and trust Him. And the anchor is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews holds up unapologetically the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus and His work. And he, with Paul and with Peter, he says, I'm preaching Jesus. And I'm going to preach Jesus. And I'm going to preach Jesus, which, by the way, in our spiritually astute culture, is not real popular. Well, you can talk about God or a higher power or some other euphemistic reference to the person of Jesus. But talking about Jesus, then you've gone across the line. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about Jesus. Because that's what the author of Hebrews talks, us, talks about. The author of Hebrews paints a picture of Christ, particularly in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and we're just looking at the first three verses this morning, that should bring us to the same conclusion as the Zulu tribesmen who describe Jesus as Unkulu Unkulu. Okay? Now, you see it on the screen, and I checked with my Zulu linguist, and I misspelled it, okay? So I'm sorry about that. Drop the U and add an N where there's an M, okay? Then you have the truest. So it's Nkulu Nkulu. He's the greatest, greatest in their language. And I submit to you that Jesus Christ is indeed, I love it, He is the greatest, greatest. And this morning, I hope to unpack as we look at these first three verses of the book of Hebrews that the, the, the first of two ways that Christ is proven to be superior in all aspects so that it would instill us as believers with confidence to follow Him and compel us as believers to serve Him. And it would invite unbelievers or those who are on the border to truly accept Him and surrender to Him. Christ is superior as our messenger. The book of Hebrews begins this way. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many ways or at many times and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us in His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the exact representation, or he is the, he's a radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is superior. He is the superior messenger. And actually, he's not only the superior messenger, he is the superior message. And he's the superior messenger because, first of all, his calling declares his supremacy. It says that he's better than the prophets. God, after he spoke, now he has spoke. It's an abrupt and a rather informative instruction. And 
when I was looking, I thought, isn't it kind of interesting that most other faith systems, it's like we're trying to talk to God. You know, they're trying to talk to God. They're trying to talk to God. But here, God is talking to us. God took the initiative. It's not like, oh, well, we have to try going. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk to God. I'm not saying that he doesn't want us to talk to him. But what I'm saying is that he initiated with us to speak. Prophets here, in my understanding, doesn't just mean Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. It doesn't just mean the prophet prophets. It means all of the writers of the Old Testament. The people who wrote the Old Testament so that the fathers could understand it. And it says that he wrote in many portions and in many ways. Now, what does that mean? So the ESV says many, at many times. Okay, So it just it describes the breadth and the diversity whereby God communicated the Old Testament. Across the span of Old Testament history, he spoke to the prophets. Now, how did God speak to the prophets? Visions and dreams and directly and lots of different ways. And then the prophets spoke to the people. I was just reading this morning in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, pack your bags. Take your bags and go down to the wall and then dig a hole in the wall and then crawl through at night, do this, as a life action prophecy. This is what's going to happen to the children of Israel. They're going to have to escape. So what your life is, what you're doing in front of them is exactly what they're going to have to do. You know, some of the, Hosea, go marry this woman. This is a, a picture of what God is doing in his relationship with the children of Israel. That's how he spoke to them at many times and in many ways in these last days. Days of the Messiah. When God spoke, how did God speak through the Messiah, Jesus? He spoke through the miracle of his presence, the incarnation. He, he spoke through the magnificence of his character. Jesus, perfect. He spoke through the meaning of his words, and he spoke through the marvel of his mercy towards us. In many ways, in many forms, God has spoken to us, and he spoke in these last days through his son. But what's interesting is he spoke long ago, so should we just forget what he said long ago? No, because in the process of progressive revelation, which is what we're talking about here, and theologians, some of you really care about this, some of you don't, we're talking about special revelation, the Word of God and the, the Word of God, Jesus. Special revelation, as opposed to general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands, is general revelation, it's what all of us see, but special revelation is His unique communication with man. And in the process of progressive revelation, the prophets spoke what was true. It was authoritative. It was accurate. We can count on it, bank on it. But it was in some ways incomplete. It wasn't full. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 says that men and women of faith died without seeing the promises. Which, uh, we have 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. It says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, 
seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels longed to look. The angels and the prophets, they didn't really know what they were talking about. But it came to fulfillment in the person and the work and the words of Jesus. What the prophets indicated and what they intimated was actually consummated, clarified, and completed in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it. I can tell you about my grandma and her butterscotch pie. Now, some of you never had homemade butterscotch pie. It is provissimo. It's mucho bono. It's great. Okay? I could tell you about the, the flaky crust that just melts on your tongue. I could tell you about the, the beautifully whipped meringue that tops the pie. It's great. I could tell you about the silky smooth inside of that pie made from brown sugar and heavy whipping cream and butter. And one pie, one piece never satisfies. And I can give you an accurate and true and authoritative description of it, but until you taste my grandma's homemade butterscotch pie, you never have the full, complete picture. When Jesus came, spoke from God in the person and the work of his son, the picture of salvation came to its fruition. It inaugurated the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets and people had talked about. True and accurate and authoritative, but yet not quite all there was to know came in the person. As R. Kent Hughes says, that Christ's life and actions fulfills and transcends every previous word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For as many as, man, as, may, as many may be the promises of God, in him are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through him. All that they said, we can say yes, amen, in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the completion of it. That's the calling that sets him apart as supreme. And now we look at the conduct that's mentioned in the text. And there are six, it's hard to identify, six roles, six actions, six activities, six realities about the person of Jesus that mark him out as supreme that are mentioned here. First, he's the heir of all things. The text says, he has spoken in these last days in us, in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. He's the beloved son. This is my beloved son. And because the son is the heir, that means that he is the rightful heir to the throne. And as the son of God, he's equal with God, which means the son is being declared equal with the father. His divinity is declared here. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, which this is a reference to, tells us a little bit about this whole thing. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you again. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is ultimately fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. Psalm 2, that's him. Jesus is it. Only through faith in the Son, who is the sole heir, do you and I become joint heirs. The Bible says we're joint heirs with Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in order that we might obtain an inheritance. Why would we get an inheritance? It's through the Son because we're related to the Son. When we become part of the God's family, we receive the inheritance through the person and work of Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator. This is kind of exciting. Through whom... He created the world. Who's he? God. Through whom? Jesus, the Son. So somehow, God and Jesus created the world. God did it through the Son. By the word of his power, he created the world. The world translates the Greek ionos, which is a broad term. It means the ages. It means that God created in Christ and through Christ the entire universe. He created time and space and energy. All that is seen and all that is unseen, He created for us to see and to enjoy. A physical universe that's so vast. Now, I'm going to throw some statistics at you. Some don't really care about this. Some might be intrigued by it, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. Okay? The universe in which we live consists of at least 100,000 million galaxies. And each galaxy has 100,000 million stars. And each galaxy is 600 trillion miles across. The North Star is 400 trillion miles from the Earth. The star Betelgeuse is 880 quadrillion miles from the Earth. That's 880 with 15 zeros after it. That's a big universe that God has created vastly. But not only the vastness of the universe, but the minutia of the universe. It's our great God in Christ Jesus who has created all of the subatomic particles that you and I cannot see. Things that are called quarks and neutrinos and neutrons and electrons and leptons and all these things that we can, in just the energy that holds them together so that they present themselves in the forms of solids, liquids, and gases, and they are in existence. He has created it all. Christ has given the hawk such acute eyesight that they could read, if they could read, newspaper print from half a mile away. The same God in Christ who created all that stuff, made a heart that pumps 5,000 gallons of blood every single day in your body. Now, okay, don't go away from here saying that, oh, the pastor says we have 5,000 gallons of blood in our body. No. 
It's the same blood. It just keeps circulating. Okay. That's not amazing. God in Christ has done that for us. This is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's intentional to communicate to you, to me, that we serve a God who is in charge and that we can have confidence even though the world should fall apart. The earth should shake and the mountains be cast into the sea. God is our refuge and ever-present help in the time of trouble. That's the Christ whom we serve. Paul said it. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or powers or principalities. He has created all things, all things are created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Even John said it in John chapter 1, 3. There's nothing made that came into being that he didn't bring into being. Now that's my paraphrase, okay, of John 1, 3. And he is also the revealer of God. Verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 1, and he is the radiance of his glory. That's light that's sent out from its source. Just like the light that we see coming from the sun is emanating from the source of the sun, Jesus Christ is the light radiating the eminence of God the Father in the sun. And I like the fact that the verb here is in the present tense. He is the radiance of his glory. That means he was, he is now, and he always will be the radiance of the glory of our Heavenly Father. He is there. And he is the exact representation of his nature. Now, before I get to that, I want to think God is the one who is the the light, and in Christ, he's shining the light of God the Father, and he does that into the hearts of unbelieving souls. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because it says there that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. But the God who said, let there be light, is the one who's shown in our hearts that we might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, It's God the Son emanating, and the response would be that we would believe. He's the exact representation of his nature. Interesting that the exact representation is the word from which we get our word character. It's the Greek word from which we get our word character. And it literally means the impression made by a stamp or a die. So that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father in his character, and his nature is the word from which we uh, theologians get this hypostatic union. It is the idea that he was fully divine and fully God, two natures coexisting completely in one person so that he becomes the exact stamp and die and the impression of God the Father to us. Want to see God? Look at Jesus. He is the one who reveals to us the full expression, the imprint of God. Now, it's hard to understand this, explain it, but there's a story that's been told of a man who was sitting in his home on Christmas Eve. Fire was burning, he was warm, he was sitting by the light reading a book, and boom, a bird hit the window outside. And then, boom, another bird hit the window outside. And he realized that the birds were trying to get in out of the cold. 
And so he put on his boots and got his coat on. He went outside. He opened the barn door and he turned on the lights in the barn. And he was trying, this little flock of birds, he was trying to, you know, herd them into the barn. And as he was trying to herd them into the barn, he heard the church bells at the Christmas Eve service ringing. And it struck him just like this. The only way for me to communicate to the birds that they need to get into the barn was for me to become a bird. The only way for God to communicate to us that we need to get out of the cold, dark night of sin and come into the light of His glorious relationship with Him is for Him to become a man, to communicate to us our sin and our need for forgiveness and that made possible through his death on the cross. He had to communicate and that's what he did when God spoke to us in these last days in his son, through his son. And then he is the sustainer of all. He upholds all things by the word of his power, by his powerful word. He keeps things going. Some say, this is theistic evolution, God started it It's like a watch, you know. God created the watch, wound the watch, and the watch just keeps ticking. I'm not buying it. I do believe God created the watch. I do believe he wound the watch. I do believe he started the watch. But I believe that he's always constantly maintaining and monitoring and working behind the scenes to keep the watch in delicate balance and keep systems and people and places and things. He's always on the move. He works and is working. Read John chapter 5. Now, what about it? Well, think about the earth for a moment. The earth is exactly positioned on its axis and in its orbit of the sun. The earth is at a 23-degree angle on its axis, so that the 12,000 degree surface temperatures of the sun don't fry us and we don't freeze, even though last winter we thought we were going to, okay? He keeps it in delicate balance. He's the God of the universe who enables us to have a moon that maintains its exact distance from the earth so we're not inundated by floods, of the oceans, you know. He's the same God who keeps all of the the gases and, and things in particular equilibrium and the right proportions so that in our atmosphere, the toxic rays of the sun don't fry us so that meteors can't kill us and so that we can breathe and live on this planet. And he does it all according to his work. He's working. He is also the Redeemer. The text says, and I like what F.F. Bruce says here. He says here, now when we talk to him about making purifications of sin, we pass from the cosmic functions of the Son of God to his personal relationship with mankind. And the people to whom this was written, predominantly a Jewish audience, they understood, look, Because we don't keep the commandments, that's called sin. And because we sin, we're separated from God. We're out of communion with God. 
It's the only way you can be in communion with God is somehow to have those sins taken care of. And so they created, a, God in his wisdom created a sacrificial system so that those sins would be temporarily uh, taken care of. God would look down and see the sacrifice of blood and say, okay, that sin is temporarily taken care of. But the problem is we keep sinning. So we keep having to sacrifice. And then we keep sinning. And so that the sin that separates them from God is never fully and finally taken care of through that sacrificial system. Now we read the text. But Christ, when he had made purification of sins, he made purification of sins. He fully and finally made purification of sins. He did what no human priest could ever do. He finally and fully paid the price for sin. We're going to get to it as we go into Hebrews a little further, but in Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. But when Christ appeared, in verse 11, as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not temporal, but eternal redemption. And then he says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling sanctifies for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here it is. This is God's message to us. In Jesus we have the full and final payment for sin. It's done. No more running around getting goats and bulls and heifers. And No. Eternal redemption. Redemption is the price of release. The price that we need to pay as the debt we owe because of our sin has been fully paid and finally paid in the person and the work of Jesus. Christ died on the cross once for all. Complete a sacrifice for our sins. And if we personally accept his death as the payment of the debt we owe, we will be forgiven and given the promise and the reality of eternal life. That's the message of Jesus. And that is the unique message of Christianity. That is a superior Savior with a superior salvation. And that's why we preach Jesus. Because apart from our sin, apart from his provision for our sin, there is no salvation. Period. We can be called narrow. We can be called bigots. We can be called whatever intolerant, whatever nasty word the people want to use. But the reality is, we say this not because we're glad that we're in and they're out, but we're glad that we're in and we want them to join us. It's the only message of salvation through Jesus. That's why it's a superior message, the glorious and gracious work of Christ on the cross that provides the full and final pardon is to be a comfort to those of us who know Christ. It is to provide confidence to those of us who know Christ. It is to provide a compulsion for us to serve this risen Savior. And it is to be 
a convicting influence on those who don't know Jesus and an invitation for them that they can be saved too. That's the Jesus that we preach. And finally, he is the ruler. This is interesting because in the sacrificial system, how often did the priests in the temple sit down? They didn't. But notice it says, he sat down after he made purification of sins. He said, hey, the sacrifices are all done. You don't need to do it anymore, so I'm sitting down. I'm taking a little break here. Because it's over. They never sat down in the temple or in the tabernacle, but he did. He sat down because he made one sacrifice for sin. And not only did he just sit down, he sat down at the right hand of power. This is Psalm 110. He is ruling from heaven on our behalf. He's also interceding from heaven on our behalf. That's Hebrews 7, verse 25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is living and he's seated in the realm of authority. So when will we submit to his authority? As his children. That's the question. One of the questions. He's sitting at the right hand. He's a superior messenger with a superior message. And he's a better priest. He's a better, better than the angels. He's got a better message, a better covenant, better promises, better everything. Nkulu, nkulu. He's the greatest, greatest. So what do we do with that? So, oh, that's nice. I mean, I didn't know all that stuff about the stars. Uh, that's, you know, I, I forgot it by now, actually. He is a superior God with a superior salvation. And the question is, does the reality of his supremacy drive home to me the truthfulness, $64 word, veracity, of his message? Is it really true? Can I believe it's true because of the one who gave it? Because he proved to me he is the heir. He is the creator. He is the revealer. He is the sustainer. He is the redeemer. And he is the ruler. And because of who he is, I can trust what he says and what he has given to me. And then, as a believer, I'm saying, amen. Is he Lord? And if he's Lord, then we should live like he's Lord. And if he is Lord, then I wonder if I'm more concerned with about saving my face than I am about saving faith. Looking good to the crowd or blending in or not being intolerant or not messing up. Or am I really interested in people coming to know Christ? Am I interested in coming to know Christ myself? Am I willing to listen more intently and communicate more freely and show my love more consistently because of what Jesus has done to, you know, take that thing out and say, am I willing to show, love my neighbor in my workplace and in my neighborhood? Am I willing to love my wife and my kids as God wants me to love because of what Jesus has done? And then if you don't know Jesus, are you willing to say, whoa, that guy, you know, he, there's, there's an argument there. At least I have to consider it. And when we close this service and as we break this bread and take this cup, here's what we do. We're celebrating his purification of sin. Once for all, the just for the unjust. That we would have a chance 
to be forgiven. That's the marvel of the message. Once for all, having suffered, he offered one sacrifice for all, and now we break this bread and we remember that sacrifice that was made for us. It gives us confidence. Yes. I don't know. I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what everybody's going through. But I know the world's throwing a whole bunch of garbage at you. Throwing a whole bunch of garbage at me. Yeah, just chuck it, just give it. Oh, just lighten up. No, don't get so excited about this Jesus thing. You know, after all, there is a ball game. And, you know, we saw how fulfilling that was because it's already over and who cares? You know, now it's like we're waiting for the next match. We'll get them in basketball if you're a Cyclone fan. And, oh, you look out if you're a Hawkeye fan. I'm rooting for you and I next week. All right? It's fleeting. It's fleeting. But what we remember when we break this bread and drink this cup is lasting. And so if you feel so led by God's grace to come as someone who's trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I hope and pray that the supremacy of Jesus will be for you who trust in Christ an anchor for your soul. And I pray for those of us who are here who maybe know about Jesus but aren't trusting him, it will be enough evidence by God's Spirit working in you, shining in the light of God through Jesus to open your eyes that you will trust Him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, take, as we take this bread, and as we drink this cup, I pray for myself and for all of us that we would join and remember Nkulu Nkulu, the greatest, greatest, that we would not say it lightly, but that we would live our lives and surrender to you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we break this bread, and as we drink this cup, we proclaim your death until you come. Come quickly, we pray in Jesus' name. Nothing can